God's Way of Holiness by Horatius Bonar The Root and Soil of Holiness Every plant must have both soil and root. Without both of these there can be no life, no growth, no fruit. Holiness must have these. The root is peace with God. The soil in which that root strikes itself and out of which it draws a vital sap is a free love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rooted in love, Ephesians 3 verse 17 is the Apostle's description of a holy man. Holiness is not austerity or gloom. These are as alien to it as levity and flippancy. Nor is it the offspring of terror, suspense, or uncertainty, but peace. Conscious peace. And this peace must be rooted in grace. It must be the consequence of her having ascertained upon sure evidence the forgiving love of God. He who would lead us into holiness must guide her feet into the way of peace. Look 1 verse 79. He must show us how, we being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we may serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. He who would do this must also give us a knowledge of salvation by the remission of sins. He must tell us how, through the tender mercy of our God, the day spring on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. In carrying out the great work of making us holy, God speaks to us as a God of peace. In 16 verse 20, the very God of peace, for Thessalonians 5 verse 23, and as being himself our peace, Ephesians 2 verse 14, that which we receive from him as such is not merely peace with God, but the peace of God, Philippians 4 verse 7, the thing which the Lord calls my peace, my joy, John 14, verse 27, John 15, verse 11. It is in connection with the exhortation, be perfect, that the apostle sets down the gracious assurance. The God of love and peace shall be with you, Second Corinthians 13, verse 11. The things I will that you affirm constantly, says the apostle, speaking of the grace of God that brings salvation, the kindness and love of God our Savior the mercy of God, justification by his grace, in order that, such as a force of the Greek, they which have believed in God may be careful to maintain good works, Titus 3 verse 8. In this peace with God there is, of course, contained salvation, forgiveness, deliverance from the wrath to come. But these, though precious, are not terminating points, nor ends, but beginnings, not the top, but the bottom of the ladder which rests its foot upon a new sepulchre, in which never man was laid, and is top against the gate of the holy city. He therefore, who is contending himself with these, has not yet learned the true purport of the gospel, nor the end which God from eternity had in view when preparing for us such a redemption as that which he has accomplished for the sons of men, through his only begotten Son who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Titus 2 verse 14 Without these, holiness is impossible, so that we may say this at least, that it is through them that holiness is made practicable, for the legal condition of the sinners under wrath stood as a barrier between him and the possibility of holiness. So long as he was under condemnation, the law prohibited the approach of everything that would make him holy. The law bars salvation, except on the fulfillment of its claims. 
So it bars holiness until the great satisfaction to its claims has been recognized by the individual, that is, until he has believed the divine testimony to the atonement of the cross, and so been personally set free from condemnation. The law pronounces against the idea of holiness in an unforgiven man. It protests against it as an incongruity and as an injury to righteousness. If then a pardoned man's remaining unholy seems strange, much more so a holy man's remaining unpardoned, the sinner's legal position must be set right before his moral position can be touched. Condition is one thing. Character is another. The sinner standing before God, either in favor or disfavor, either under grace or under wrath, must first be dealt with There is inner renewal can be carried on. The judicial must precede the moral. Hence it is a pardon that the gospel first speaks to us. For the question of pardon must first be settled before we proceed to others. The adjustment of the relationship between us and God is an indispensable preliminary both on God's part and on ours. There must be friendship between us, ere he can bestow or we receive his indwelling spirit. For on the one hand, the spirit cannot make us dwelling in the unforgiven, and on the other, the unforgiven must be so occupied with the one question of forgiveness that they are not at leisure to attend to anything till this has been finally settled in their favor. The man who knows that the wrath of God is still upon him, or which is the same thing practically, is not sure whether it has been turned away or not, is really not in a condition to consider other questions, however important. If he has any true idea of the magnitude and terribleness of the anger of him who is a consuming fire, the divine order then is first pardon, then holiness, first peace with God, and then conformity to the image of that God with whom we have been brought to be at peace. First likeness to God is produced by beholding his glory, Second Corinthians 3 verse 18, and as we cannot look upon him till we know that he has ceased to condemn us, and as we cannot trust him till we know that he is gracious, so we cannot be transformed into his image till we have received pardon at his hands. Reconciliation is indispensable to resemblance. Personal friendship must begin a holy life. If such be the case, pardon cannot come too soon. Even were the guilt of an unpardoned state not reason enough for any amount of urgency in obtaining it without delay, nor can we too strongly insist upon the divine order above referred to. First, peace, then holiness. Peace is the foundation of holiness, even in the case of the chief of sinners. Some do not object to a reputable man obtaining immediate peace, but they object to a profligate getting it at once. So it has always been. The old taunt is still on the lips of the modern Pharisee. It's gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And the Simons of our day speak within themselves and say, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Luke 7, verse 39. But when that end, Manasseh and Magdalene and Saul and the woman of Sychar and the jailer and the men of Jerusalem, whose hands were red with blood, were they not trusted with a free and immediate peace? Did not the very essence and strength of the gospel, curative and purifying power, lie in the freeness, the promptness, the certainty of the peace which it brought to these chief of sinners? So you say, you have found Christ. And at peace with God, said one who claimed the name of evangelical to a poor profligate, 
only a few weeks before had been drawn to the cross. I have indeed, said the poor man. I have found him. I have peace, and I know it. Know it, said the divine. And have you the presumption to tell me this? I have been a respectable member of a church for thirty years, and have not got peace nor assurance yet. And you, who have been a profligate most of your life, say that you have peace with God? Yes, I have been as bad as a man can well be. But I have believed the gospel, and that gospel is good news for the likes of me. If I have no right to peace, I'd better go back to my sins, for I cannot get peace as I am. I shall never get it at all. It's all a delusion, said the other. Do you think that God would give a sinner like you peace, and not give it to me, who have been doing all I can to get it for so many years? You are such a respectable man, said the other an unconscious irony, that you can get on without peace and pardon, but a wretch like me cannot. If my peace is a delusion, it cannot be a bad one, for it makes me leave off sin. It makes me pray and read the Bible. Since I got it, I've turned over a new leaf. It won't last, said the other. Well, but it is a good thing while it does last, and it is strange to see the like of you trying to take from me the only thing that ever did me good. It looks as if you would be glad to see me going back to my old sins. You never tried to bring me to Christ. And now when I've come to him, you're doing all you can to take me away. But I'll stick to him in spite of you. I'll speak as if it would imperil morality to let the sinner obtain immediate peace with God. If to peace be false, morality may be compromised by men pretending to the possession of a peace which is yet no peace. But in that case, the evil complained of is the result of the hollowness, not the suddenness of the peace, and can afford no ground for objecting to speedy peace unless speedy peace is of necessity false, and unless the mere length of the process is security for the genuineness of the result. The existence of false peace is no argument against truth, and what we affirm is that true peace can neither be too speedy nor too sure. Others speak as if no sinner could be trusted with pardon till he has undergone a certain amount of preliminary mental suffering, more or less in duration and in intensity according to circumstances. It would be dangerous to the interests of morality to let him obtain an immediate pardon, and especially to be sure of it, or to rejoice in it. If the man had been previously moral in life, they would not object to this, but they question the profligate's right to present peace, and protest against the propriety of it on grounds of subtle morality. They argue for delay, to give him time to improve before he ventures to speak of pardon, they insist upon a long season of preparatory conflict, years of sad suspense and uncertainty, in order to qualify the prodigal for his father's embrace, and to prevent the unseemly spectacle of a sinner this week rejoicing in the forgiveness of his sins, the last week was wallowing in the mire. This season of delay, during which they would prohibit the sinner from assuring himself of God-free love, they considered the proper safeguard of a free gospel, and a needful guarantee for the sinner's future humility and holiness. Is not then the position taken up by these men substantially that adopted by the scribes, when they murmured at the Lord's gracious familiarity with the unworthy, saying, This man receives sinners, and eats with them, 
And is it not in a great measure coincident with the opinion of popish divines respecting the danger to morality from the doctrine of immediate justification through simple faith and the justifying work of Christ? When Bishop Gardiner, 1438-1555, the popish persecutor lay dying in 1555, Day, Bishop of Chichester, 1501-1556, began to comfort him says John Fox, with words of God's promise and free justification by the blood of Christ. What? said the dying Romanist. We open that gap? Meaning that inlet of evil. To me and others, in my case, you may speak of it. But once open this window to the people, then farewell all good. The apostles evidently had great confidence in the gospel. They gave it fair play and spoken out in all of its absolute freeness as men who could trust it for its moral influence, as well as for its saving power, and who felt that the more speedily and certainly its good news were realized by the sinner, the more would that moral influence come into play. It did not hide it, nor trample it, nor fence it round with conditions, as if doubtful of the policy of preaching it freely. Be it known unto you, they said, men and brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified, Act 13.38-39. They had no misgivings as to its bearings on morality, nor were they afraid of men believing it too soon, or getting to immediate relief from it. The idea does not seem to have entered their mind, that men could betake themselves to Christ too soon, or too confidently, or without sufficient preparation. Their object in preaching it was not to induce men to commence a course of preparation for receiving Christ, but to receive him at once and on the spot, not to lead them through the long avenue of a gradually amended life to the cross of the sin-bearer, but to bring them at once into contact with the cross, that sin in them might be slain, the old man crucified, and a life of true morality begun. It's the strongest motive to a holy life, they preached the cross, they knew that the cross once seen as death to every vice. In the interests of holiness, they stood and pleaded with men to take the proffered peace. It is no disparagement to morality to say the good works are not the way to Christ. It is no slighting of the sacraments to say that they are not the sinner's resting place. So neither is it any deprecation of devotion or repentance or prayer to say that they are not qualifying processes which fit the sinner for approaching the Savior, either as making the sinner more acceptable, or Christ more willing to receive. Still less is it derogating from the usefulness or the blessedness of these exercises in their proper place and office, to say that they are often the refuges of self-righteousness, pretexts which a sinner makes use of to excuse his guilt, and not at once taken salvation from the hands of Jesus. We do not undervalue love because we say a man is justified by love, but by faith. We do not discourage prayer because we preach that a man is not justified by prayer, but by faith. When we say that believing is not working, but is ceasing from work, we do not mean that the believing man is not to work, but that he is not to work for pardon but to take it freely in that he is to believe before he works, or works done before believing are not pleasing to God.